You're listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast with Ian Tullock and Anthony Petrielli. Welcome to the Maple Leaf Hot Stove Podcast. My name's Ian Tullock. I'm here with Anthony Petrielli. And Anthony, we have another guest joining us today. How about you go ahead and introduce him for us? Yeah, nobody has asked for him, but we've been bugging him for weeks now to come on. I can't think of a better start than that. Alec, thanks for joining <laughs> us finally. Yeah, I thought I'd give you guys a good run of 10 episodes before I jumped in and fix things. Uh, but I, do, I don't want to like, uh, I don't want to be the Taylor Hall to year two chemistry. So uh, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be mindful of that. You don't want to come in and get a bunch of zone entries and pick up an assist in your first game for Boston. That's not what we're doing here. Did they credit him with an assist on that? It was a Barabanov assist where you didn't complete the pass, but you still pick up the primary assist. Yeah, it was one of those. I don't think they did, by the way, Anthony. I looked it up. And yeah. nor, nor should they. That was a turnover that was then touched by, clearly touched by a Buffalo player. So it's uh, still searching for his first point, but Anders Bjork uh, is on the score sheet. Who also missed an empty net in overtime that, that game. And Taylor Hall had a two-on-one and kept it in shot, which I don't know why he would, and uh, predictably missed. And uh, I was like, honestly, a little part of me was like, thank God, because if he scored that goal, we would have been hearing about it. Ian would have been dancing on our graves right now. Uh, I just looked it up, and Taylor Hall did not get credited with an assist on that Craig Smith goal. I know people don't want to hear about Taylor Hall. I'm sure his name will come up at some point in the podcast today, just based on the fact that uh, he was one of the players moved at the deadline. But should we should we be talking about the fact that he's wearing 71 and how? Uh, I mean, conspiracy theory here, maybe, but I'm pretty sure Brad Marchand is behind that. <laughs> he's very in t- I mean it's he's a very uh, job. he's very in tune with the storylines that are going on online I feel Marchand uh, and I think he would have thought that would be hilarious if he wore the same number as Nick and Mike Foligno uh, for the Bruins and by the way who wouldn't love to see them play each other in the final uh, if it ever came to that oh. we're already talking about it right now do you want to just get into the Nick Foligno Taylor Hall thing before we address some of the Leafs other players that they added or where do you guys want to take this conversation we can talk about the players they added since because people are probably upset about the Taylor Hall conversation at this point. And we, never, we haven't really talked about the rest of their deadline, which was really, what, trading for David Riddich, um, getting rid of Bear Banoff, and uh, they brought in a depth player from San Jose, who I actually think is a little bit more intriguing than maybe given credit for, just because he's a strong guy at the faceoff dot. And I know... Can you pronounce his name, though? No. Can you? <laughs> no. Suamela, I think I want to say it. I, I apologize if I can't. Um, but we know Keith's been really upset with the the faceoff production, and like he's alluded to it a number of times, and he's noted how it's dictated ice time. So I do think it's slightly interesting, but probably not going to play. And then they brought in a. I've been saying it the whole year, as you know. Martin Brinson cannot be their seventh defenseman, just on principle alone. Like I just can't handle it. So. <laughs> Overall, what do we think about this deadline? I think the Leafs crossed a lot of boxes here. I know that I'm the annoying nerd who's bringing up the fact that I'd prefer Taylor Hall to Nick Foligno, but I also had Nick Foligno second on the list of players I wanted the Leafs to add because he's such a good defensive player, and he's versatile, and he's going to be able to play up and down that lineup and help you in a bunch of different ways. So love the Nick Foligno addition, even though he wasn't the perfect addition in my eyes. Ben Hutton is going to give you just what you said. He's going to be not Martin Marincin, who can come in and kill penalties. And if there's an injury on the blue line, whether it's to a Jake Muzzin or a Zach Bogosian, someone who tends to get more of the defensive usage, I think he's someone who can come in and help you in that regard. He's not going to play big minutes. I'm not sure how many games he ends up playing. We'll see. But you needed a bit of injury replacement just in case something went wrong in the blue line there. Like the Ben Hutton addition. Dave Riddich. I mean... This Frederick Anderson injury, I think it's official that they're not super confident in this. I don't think they have been over the last month, especially when you look at the way that they were publicly not giving us much information about Frederick Anderson. I think this this kind of suggests that the injury is, I don't want to say serious, but it's something that they don't feel good about going into a playoff series, and they'd rather have someone who's a bit more stable and has been a league average goaltender for the last couple of years. So. I think they added a lot of guys. Even Riley Nash is someone who can come in and give them defensive minutes on a checking line in the playoffs. So I think they added a lot of pieces that are going to make them much more difficult to play against. 
Alec, I know that you thought Nick Felino was the perfect addition for this team, so I'll, I'll just tee you up here to kind of give your thoughts on the Leafs deadline. I mean, overall, as you said, Ian, like they ticked every box without giving up, you know, a single top prospect of note. They didn't uh, move any young roster talent. Uh, to me, this was just clear as day. It's a year to go all in. Actually, I'll, I'll walk back all in. I don't think, I don't love all in as a description for this stage of their process. I think all in is more like what like Columbus did in 2019. Uh, what the Leafs are doing, I think, is just going for it. It's a, it's, a, it's a subtle but, I think, important distinction to make because they are still oriented around a longer-term window. I think if you were all in in any one year when you still have a core that's as young as the Leafs, it would suggest that you've, like, badly mismanaged something as far as, like, the contracts of the core you have. Um, but it was the first year where, like, aggressively buying made complete sense. And this is what it looks like. Like, for anyone who forgot what, like, Pat Quinn era was like in 2004 this is what you do at this time when you feel like you have a chance um i love the felino fit for a bunch of reasons and this isn't there's been a lot of revisionist history i feel about like people that were uh offended by the idea of giving up a first for felino who are now seem to be justifying it but i was very much on the felino thing beforehand i have my receipts on twitter if you want to check but i I see him as a... I, I would start him next to Tavares. We only do um, that on Twitter when the takes suck. We don't actually do them when they work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you go back and delete the tweet when you're dead wrong. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would start him next to Tavares with, you know, either Galchenik or Hyman on the Matthews Marner line, depending. But I just love the options it creates. Uh, I don't expect Keefe to be married to anything, nor should he be. He has, like, 10 games here to play around with it. Uh, I personally think Tavares is really good with guys who can can bang and can play a bit like just guys who can really uh create a good four check and cycle game below the hash marks sort of be at the net creating the kind of like havoc and the kind of loose puck situations and tight close to the net uh that Tavares is so good at capitalizing on uh for that reason like I don't even personally see Hall necessarily as a better fit stylistically than Felino is but that's just me like Tavares to me has looked um as good at any point this season playing with wingers like Hyman and Mikheyev yeah, and I think when you look at Tavares, he's not dynamic in open space. He never really has been. But the one thing he's amazing at is in the offensive zone, in tight spaces. He can stick handle in a phone booth, quickly shift his way around to beat his man on the cycle. And now the defense is collapsing. Now they're panicking. Tavares is also really good at winning pucks back below the goal line. So like you said, when you play him with a Hyman or a Nick Felino type, or what if you tried both? There are options yep. here. You can try different things with Tavares. I like your point about Felino in the offensive zone with Tavares because the one thing that Felino's excellent at is forechecking, winning pucks back, and forcing his way to that net front area. And Justin Bourne wrote an article this year that really made me think about how teams go about creating offense, particularly in the playoffs. I know that if anyone watches basketball, the difference between regular season basketball and postseason basketball, there's a drastic difference. There isn't as much transition. Things slow down a bit more. You're in the half court. And in hockey, I Players think... Players try all uh, game. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. In hockey, I think the way of looking at it is there's more rush opportunities in the regular season. But in the playoffs, it's a bit more of a cycle-based game. And we saw this last year. We've seen this in the last couple of games, actually, where Toronto struggles to gain the zone with the speed. They're not able to create those little zone entries and passes off the zone entry that they want to create. So instead, you're forced to create off the cycle. And that's where someone like Nick Foligno can really help you. Because when the scoring chances dissipate, when the space is taken away... Who are some players who can get to that middle ice and really make life difficult for the opposition so that randomness can come in? And a, a shot from the point, all of a sudden you're winning that loose puck race to the rebound. You're deflecting pucks in front. It's, I think it's an important aspect of play that, like you said, Alec, the Leafs are missing a bit of that element. So I can definitely understand why you'd value that instead of a, another shifty puck carrier. We already have William Nylander. Do we need another one in Taylor Hall? But... I do like the idea of diversifying your approach offensively. I think it's going to make you a more yep. difficult team to defend. Uh, I, I'm curious, uh, Alec, or not Alec, Anthony, sorry. How about you hop in here and give us your thoughts about kind of how these additions to the Leafs are going to make them a more difficult team to play against because that was clearly the goal going into the deadline. I like, I like that he didn't leave any stone unturned this year, right? Like this was the year to kind of do that, have that kind of approach to the deadline you know, he could have reasonably just went with uh, Jack Campbell and Michael Hutchinson and 
you know, crossed his fingers and hoped that Freddie got okay. I don't really know what data, but he was like, nope. Uh, we need another goalie. I'm not messing around. A third-round pick might actually end up being quite a bit for what could, in essence, be a backup goalie that ends up playing like four games for the Leafs. Like Michael Hutchinson could have lost in overtime last night. No problem. So, but he was like, you know what? I don't know if I feel great on it. I need to get another guy. I don't know if I feel great on Martin Marinson. I need to get another guy. And people are looking at three draft picks in each of the next two years. I would like to think that they recruit at least one, if not two of those picks trading Alex Kerfoot this offseason. I'd like to think. Maybe I'm wrong. Do you think they get positive value for him in a trade? If they get two-fourths, whatever, call it a day. Third, I don't know. It depends how he probably does it in the playoffs. He needs like a game seven game winner just to... Yeah. Yeah, he I scores. Mean, if he shoots the puck a bit more. He might get those goals. It muffins though when he shoots. He finishes it, okay in tight. He finishes yeah. okay in tight, but he's got a yeah a real muffin of a shot. One other yeah, point that I would make about on Felino there, uh, I don't know if you guys remember in the series last year, the play-in series against Columbus, but uh, Tortorella put together a line at that time with uh, Nyquist, Felino, and Jenner. Um, and he had Felino at center, which I think he can do in a pinch. I, I, I don't think it's something you're going to turn to regularly, but it's worth noting. Uh, but Torts put that line together for games four and five in that series, and they saw a lot of tough competition. Like, they saw a steady diet of Matthews and Tavares. Uh, I remember the numbers against Matthews and Marner's line. Like, I think they limited them to, uh, I don't have the numbers handy, but it was something like four high-danger chances in 25 minutes, even strength, head-to-head. They outpossessed the Matthews Meyer line 53 to 47. So uh, there's a few elements to it that I see as like such a good fit in terms of I think sometimes we look at it the wrong way when we say, oh, the Leafs couldn't score in that series against Columbus. Uh, they needed they definitely needed a haul. He's actually, like I said, kind of the last thing I think of when I think about what they needed in that series. I I think they didn't make it hard enough on the other team's goaltenders to the point where they were able to get goalied. They didn't, I think more than that, they didn't shut games down properly. And they gave up a huge lead in game three that honestly, I think that doesn't get enough attention for being the turning point in that series. All the insanity in games four and five and so on catches the attention in hindsight and stands out in like the memory bank. But after the Leafs lost game one, they won game two convincingly. And they should have it had... It looked over after game it, two. It game looked, two, I was like, okay. It looked over yeah. halfway through Game 3 because they had Game 3 yeah. in the bag. It looked like they had totally taken the series over and they were going to win it in four, honestly, at that point. Then they could not lock it down for shit. And the series went haywire from there. So what happens if they just are able to lock down that multi-goal lead properly in Game 3? It's not a crazy ask. And I think we're talking about a... We're, like we're in a completely different position talking about a completely different outcome. So... I think it's a little bit lazy to just say like, oh, the Columbus goalies were unreal and we'll call it a day. I mean, they were, but like, where's that excuse going to get you at the end of the day? Like another early exit, chalking it up to the PDO gods and saying, oh, we, we lost out in round one with a nice little moral victory. Like to me, Felino gives them another guy who will run over a goalie if he has to. Uh, he's someone who can help them lock things down uh, with the lead in a third period. And I think that has kind of like a, like a multi-sided value that I think nets out better than the other options when it comes to like matching the team's needs. And when you bring up defensive value, sometimes guys can get inflated defensive numbers when they're playing third lines or they're playing some easier competition. Nick Foligno's not one of those guys. He's been getting some of the toughest minutes in the league over the last few years and still posting positive results defensively. It's very difficult to do that, which I think speaks to how good of a player he is defensively. And I think in hockey, defense is one of the most difficult things to measure because when you're impacting goals for, it's more repeatable. When we look at passes, we look at shots that you're generating, we can look at specific skills that we see with our eyes are leading to these goals. When you're preventing goals against, or you're preventing scoring chances against, sometimes that doesn't show up to the naked eye. So sometimes you don't really see how a guy is arriving at those results. Some guys do it by cycling in the offensive zone, just playing a strong game of keep away, and now the other team isn't getting chances. Some guys are standing in the perfect position in the defensive zone, in the neutral zone, especially guys who can gap up early and kill the play in the neutral zone before it has a chance to develop. You won't see that. So with Nick Foligno, what is it that he does specifically that you think is showing up in these numbers? Because a stats nerd like me can see these numbers throughout his career and see that he's having a very positive impact on the game defensively. 
I'm curious how he goes about doing that because some players have a different way of accomplishing those results. I can speak to it a little bit. I mean, part of it is always, um, I'll, I'll never forget one coach was telling me how he brought in Chris Draper to talk to his team about penalty killing. Chris Draper, elite checker, what, Team Canada 2006, uh, which was hilarious at best. Ahead of Sidney Crosby. Um, yeah, right? That was um, not a good decision. Brian McCabe showed out as well. Uh, but he remember, he was like, I brought Chris Draper in, and Chris Draper was basically just like, if the guy has the puck, you know, on like his hip, you just stand here. Or if the guy like moves the puck on his blade, you just move your stick here. And he's like, none of my guys understood it. Like you can't, like, he's just like, it's an ability. Like some players get on the ice and they just know what's happening. And to me, Felino kind of fits that bill in the, in the offensive zone. He's more effort based, right? Like he's, as you mentioned, he gets in on the four check. He uses his body. He's a, he's a strong dude, right? Like he's, he's not huge, like height wise, but he's strong he's thick like he can muscle like through guys and win puck battles but defensively he just kind of has that innate ability to understand where to go understand you know he plays between the puck and the net consistently which is really all you want your guys to do like be between the puck and the net and make sure that you are actually covering your man and make sure that you're bodying guys appropriately like he does all those little things that kind of add up to him being a really good defensive player and Alec mentioned him playing at center last year in the playoffs and it is a little bit more interesting when you really look at and I know we were just talking about before we clicked record because we always basically have a fake podcast uh, before we actually press record on this thing but sometimes they go longer than the actual podcast which is stunning and uh, one day we'll just record from the beginning and I will burn the tape the second that we end this video. But before we get to that point, Shadlin Keefe is not really happy with Pierre Engvall right now. And I don't think he really has been consistently like through and through. So I kind of look and I'm like, there's a decent, like actually a better than decent chance that we see him in the playoffs. And I'll throw that point back to you guys quickly. But the only other thing I really wanted to add on it because I know price has been a really big sticking point, which is fair. Uh, I think it's disingenuous when people just blatantly say they paid a first round pick for a third liner. Like he's not a third liner. Like he's a legitimate second line player in the league. He could legitimately play on your first, second or third line. He could, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't, you don't have to be an 80 point player to play on the first line. Like he could play on the first line with Matthews and Marner and help make them better and fit that role. Like, He's had an above-average impact throughout his career, so I just think logically that would make him a top-six player instead of yeah. a bottom-six player, right? Yeah, but I've just seen people throw out, like, they traded a first for a third-line player. I'm like, he's not a third-line player. He could play, just because he can play on the third line and play that role well doesn't mean that he is just exclusively a third-line player. That's just a really poor way of framing it. But the other thing I was thinking about, about paying up, and in comparison to a guy like Taylor Hall, which is, I know, the name of the week, but one thing that they did pay for, uh, they paid an abundance for in terms of price it compared to Hall, is they paid for certainty. And there is something to be said for that, right? Like the, I know that the ceiling is not as high, but the floor is definitely not as low. Like if Taylor Hall goes in and he just produces nothing, and I know that we've talked about this a little bit, right? Like is he going to keep shooting like 3% the rest of his career? Probably not. But could he possibly just do that for the rest of this season like he admitted himself he's not a confident player right now and if you watch him like he oozes that like he needs to be built back up a little bit and that's fine that's a player you would totally take a bet on to do it preferably you would do that you know at training camp and through like the season not with 10 games to go going into the playoffs so there's something to be said for paying for someone who's just a little bit more certain, right? The Leafs are like, we're just going to throw them into the lineup and it is what it is. Kyle Dubas was like, just keep playing like yourself and we're going to be good. So I think there is extra value to that. And I think that's why pretty much league-wide teams were a lot more interested in Nick Felino because they're like, I can just insert this guy into my lineup. Like, I do not have to worry. But you do kind of have to worry a little bit about what Taylor Hall is going to do or not do. Yeah, anytime a guy goes through a, a year from hell, like Taylor Hall, or I'm thinking William Nylander after the contract dispute, and you know that this player is talented, and you know that they're not going to keep shooting this absurdly low percentage, but because everything's been going wrong over the last month or two months or three months, 
what's the chances of that happening again in the next month versus like you said having a full reset coming in fresh start new year it's a much safer bet in that new year than it is in the year where they're actually struggling so i think that's something that the stats nerds like myself maybe aren't taking into full account with a taylor hall regression candidacy here uh, I think one, Ian, one thing you, I think I think there's a lot of things that are not. I know we don't want to belabor the t- the whole thing too much. You guys talked about it a lot. Might as well do it. I feel like it's on everyone's <laughs> mind. But yeah, like I think there's a bunch of things that play there. Like Occam's razor applies in terms of people of Galaxy brained it with why the Leafs didn't get them. They didn't want them um, in any serious way. I don't think uh, that's not to say I don't think either that uh, Hall was necessarily the Leafs' first choice. Like I don't think the Leafs were Hall's first choice. Sorry, I think he genuinely wanted to go somewhere where he, you know. A, a team had potentially the future cap space to keep him. So knowing that, like, I think the price on Hall, and this kind of bugs me about the way these things get discussed, like it's a one-to-one comparison when it's not, like the price on Hall would have changed for Toronto for multiple reasons. Like they would have needed to uh, involve a third party to facilitate partial retention, which Boston didn't. Uh, more than that, like Hall has full control over where he's going. He probably picks Boston because of, you know, past interest shown in signing him long-term, uh, according to him. Uh, so they'd probably have to better Boston's offer by a fair bit. And even then, unlike with uh, Nick Felino, who, you know, he wanted to ensure Columbus got a max return for him. He said that in the media. It makes sense. He's been a captain. He's dedicated a ton to that organization. Unlike uh, Felino, Hall is under no loyalty or obligation to Buffalo after a few months there. So he didn't have, they, they were completely at his mercy as to where he went. So if he was going to be a Leaf, the deal was going to look, I think, quite a bit different and a little bit more expensive. So that has to be noted. And then I think what Anthony said and uh, was exactly right, which is that I think there are some real Tyson Berry parallels with him right now in terms of, I'm not saying they're equivalent players. Like if Berry was a forward, he'd be as good as Hall. I'm not saying. To be clear, do you think Tyson Berry is as good as Taylor Hall? (laughs) This season. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I'd be shocked if Dubas wasn't calling on that experience a little bit in terms of it's a big contract year for a player who needs to produce his year is going terribly wrong uh we saw with Barry how hard it is once the snowball starts kind of rolling downhill on you to get it going again uh to get your year back together the Leafs even and Nylander Marner yeah exactly like even the, the Marner was able to turn it around in some of those years where he was struggling just the just the contract year where he came in and like like last year, like he, it, it weighed on him. You could tell. Yeah. And if you, if you can contrast that now with like the list of rentals that the Leafs have, have acquired abs to a man, none of them are feeling any pressure at all to put up individual seasons with amazing numbers or to produce for their next contract. Like by and large, they're all here just to win at this point. And I'm not saying that Hall didn't want to win. I suspect, you know, if you spend enough time in Edmonton and Buffalo, you really do. But Hall legitimately has to be thinking a little bit about his own career earnings, his own reputation. And that's not a knock on him as a person at all. I have no idea who he is as a person or what he's like personality-wise. But that's just a, that's like a current fact of his current reality. And then what Anthony said there, too, about like uh, that quote he had about, you know, I'm a player with very low confidence right now. That's not us editorializing. That's what he said. I don't think that's something the Leafs need to deal with at this point in the season, with how things are going. I mean, they did build up Galchenyuk's confidence a little bit when he came here, uh, but they had no obligation to shove aside other people and put him in their top six, put him on a prime power play opportunity, unless Galchenyuk had proven he had earned it and was in a better place. So layer on top of all of this, all the media storylines and drama that he would have brought, uh, through no fault of his own, but that's just the reality of the situation, I don't think it was something the Leafs, as a team that was like 9-0-1 in their last 10, really feeling good about themselves, really needed to take on as a project at that point in the season. Yeah, and I went on Sportsnet today to talk about Taylor Hall, and the main reason I was on is because I'm one of the few people who still have been pushing heavily on the Taylor Hall bandwagon in terms of I thought he was the right player for the Leafs to acquire, and most smart people have been saying, no, it's Nick Foligno is the guy you're supposed to be acquiring. So I can understand that it's not something that people want to hear, particularly after the fact. Before the fact, it's something that... Is, you know, it's good conversation to be having. Afterwards, you kind of feel like an annoying kid who's crying that they didn't get their toy. So I don't want to keep beating the drum here. So let's move on to a different discussion. The rest of the deadline. The, exactly. What do you so, think of the rest? 
who are the winners and losers for you? I mean, I could just make the joke that Buffalo's a loser for not getting much for Taylor Hall, but, you know, it takes two to tango, and it sounds like all the other GMs in the NHL were kind of doing the prisoner's dilemma thing of just not letting them get any real assets for Taylor Hall. They were probably a loser for not giving, like, not making him put down a partial no-movement clause, but maybe they wouldn't have been able to sign him in the first place. But not having a partial, like, him just totally controlling where he could go, it, it messed them up. I think that was c- contingent on him signing there. I'm not sure if I would sign with Buffalo without a no movement clause if I'm Taylor Hall. But looking at other teams around the league, when I think of who was the biggest winner, I think Tampa Bay adding David Savard, even though they paid a premium, playing him alongside Victor Hedman for a playoff run, sign me up for that. I think that's a better partner than Zach Bogosian heading into the playoffs. Yeah, Alec, you want to go? Because I'll probably go on a little bit of a rant here. Uh, yeah, the, the the other winners outside, I think we laid out a case for when the Leafs did pretty well, all things considering, as much as they did pay up. Uh, I credit where it's due, I guess, like Boston played it just right on Hall. Like they got him dirt cheap. I think they waited out the market well. There's uh, no risk for Boston in that Zero trade. risk. I think uh, he's far more of what they need than what the Leafs need in terms of they are rail thin after their top guys right now, especially with some of the underperformance they have with like DeBrusque um, and Coyle and others. Uh, so... They need, I think if you look at the underlying numbers, Ian, I know you'll like this. Uh, they, I think they score as one of the worst teams in the league this year in rush offense. Um, so that's something that Hall instantly helps them with. Uh, t- kind of in bo- Boston's position, taking a second-round pick swing on Hall, like snapping back into form or something closer to it, totally worth the price they paid. Um, I, liked, I thought Vegas and Tampa kind of did what they had to do, but they definitely paid up. Like Savard, they, they paid for him. Uh, I thought the Yanmark deal by Vegas was pretty pricey uh, for what they're getting. Uh, it wasn't even the Yanmark that Kevin Bieksa had heard of. <laughs> the trade deadline podcast. Amazing moment on the on the broadcast. But that was on the seller on the seller side. Uh, I really just to flip the perspective on the Felino deal. I really like what Columbus did. Like that Felino situation for Yarmo Kikalina. It's not an easy thing to handle or navigate. Uh, you want to kind of be respectful to to Felino as a player, let him pick a spot, let him go to a spot he wants to go, uh, be respectful of his family and who he is as a person. And they managed to still get, I think, a really good return. Uh, the Savard return was also good. So I think they net out on like two firsts, a third, two fourths from Toronto, uh, a sixth from Toronto potentially if Riley Nash, who was, com- was out for the season, uh, at least until the playoffs, they got a pick out of that too. So, you know, do credit where it's, where it's due there in terms of what Yarmo managed to do. Uh, and then I think like Steve Eiserman deserves some, some praise as well in terms of that final deal with Washington, not only made the deadline um, a little bit more livable in terms of you know, investing eight hours of your day into it. But uh, I think it's a really good trade by them. Um, I think Verona gets kind of underappreciated, uh, underrated player. And then they get a first and a second out of it, uh, knowing kind of where they're at developmentally, like Mantha's not going to be probably not going to be totally at his production peak um, when they're actually competitive. So they did really well there, I think. And then even just looking at like his, his cumulative work, if you go back to like the early stages of the season with uh, he's kind of doing what the Leafs did so well early on in their rebuild, where they were using their cap space and their resources really well to accumulate a ton of picks. He used his cap space in that Mark Stahl deal back in the fall and grabbed a second round pick out of that. So overall, I think their direction is, um, I think I'd be really encouraged as a Wings fan in terms of everything he's handled. Uh, you guys can jump in here whenever you want on teams you like, but I would give a nod to Colorado too. Just, I don't think they did anything special. They didn't get a big impact guy like the Leafs did, but like Dubnik, I think was a really necessary bit of insurance. I don't mind Nemeth as a depth add on defense. Uh, I like that they brought in guys they're familiar with, right? Like they know him, they yep. know Soderberg. I think there's something to that. They're just like, you know what? Like low maintenance guys, we know them. They can chip in if they make us half a percent better. Sweet, we got them for nothing. I think they should have traded for a better goalie than Devin Dubnik. If you're trying to improve That's your fair. chances in net, I, he hasn't been very good the last couple of years. Uh, I like the point that you just brought up, Alec, about Steve Eiserman and not just getting good draft picks for Anthony Mantha, but. Jacob Verano, who is a sneaky underrated player at generating offense, they could choose to flip him in the offseason. They could let him score a few more goals here and then see what they can get for him. But it's never bad to add a good asset to your team, especially when you're a team like Detroit, who knows that they're not going to be contending anytime soon. So just flip 
current wins for future wins, and eventually when you those prospects develop, you'll have a, a better pool of talent to surround them with. So big fan of what Iserman's been doing there. Try to think of any other losers who come to mind for me at the deadline. I'm just thinking of teams in the North who any Canadian <laughs> team is going to have a better chance at winning the Cup this year than they will next year and in years beyond because the Atlantic's going to come back into existence. Other divisions are going to come back into existence. So if you're a team like Winnipeg or yep. Edmonton and you yeah. have a chance to bolster your blue line and the best you can do is Jordy Ben if you're Winnipeg, I'm just it's very disappointing. I know that Matias Ekholm didn't end up getting moved by Nashville. They didn't end up trading Michael I told Brandon you Nashville wouldn't sell. We said it yep, here for they, a month. They won too many games, and the loser point exists. So I, I blame Gary Bettman and the loser point. But if you're shovel day off, I know Jeff Merrick used to joke that he really puts the day off and shovel day off, but you have a team here who needs blue liners, and you didn't add a blue liner. It's got to be infuriating if you're a Jets fan. And I consider myself a huge Nick Ehlers fan. Give that guy some talent to work with. He doesn't even get PP one time. I feel bad for Nick Ehlers and my Jets truthers out there. I mean, if you so, just contrast it, like what I'm not saying that Bergevin's a model of NHL management in any respect, but like he's not. He's not. But you got to respect. Like he's constantly chipping away, trying to shore up a roster that, honestly, at the top end of that roster, it's not good enough to emerge out of the North. It's not good enough to get to the finals. It's certainly not good enough to win a cup. So. But like c- contrast it with like what Shevel Dayoff's doing, and it's like what, what just completely sitting on your hands. Shifley is what twenty eight now. Hellebuck is Hellebuck's twenty eight or twenty nine. I don't know what he is now. But Wheeler is in his mid thirties. Uh, like, do you have any interest at all in trying to win? Uh, like, they, it's true to me that they there's no top four defenseman out there outside of Savard who went for a very high price. Uh, who was going to really move the needle maybe on defense. I think they need a top four defenseman, but perhaps two. Uh, Ekholm kind of got removed from the market on them, but they legitimately do need top six NHL defensemen, and some of them move for cheap. Uh, maybe maybe get one that's not Jordy Ben. Like the, the end result for them is that they basically have Jordy Ben to rotate in for Logan Stanley, and that's the full, By the way. full amount of their moves. Unlike, unlike like, the contrast I was trying to draw with Bergevin is that Unlike him, Bergevin's trying to shore up the edges of a roster that I think at the top end fundamentally isn't good enough. Shevel uh, Dayoff has a roster that is good enough at the higher end of it, who has an like, actual... I think if he patched some holes this year, he, he would be right there with the idea that he could... I don't think he would be crazy to think he could beat the Leafs with Hellebuck and Net if he, if he shored that up a little bit on the back end. And he did nothing. Another sneaky ad is Victor Mete to the Ottawa Senators. I know that that's through waivers, but if you're a Sens fan and this season hasn't been going too well for you and all of a sudden you have a 22-year-old strong puck mover that you're adding to your organization, that's nice. I think a lot of teams probably put a claim in on Mete. So that's just a side thing. I know we were joking about Mark Bergevin earlier. I think letting go of Victor Mete and replacing him with uh, Ben Sherratt, I don't know if that's going to help your chances in the playoffs. It kind of reminds me of uh, Carl, Carl Alsner over Nate Schmidt for the Washington Capitals back when they were facing the Leafs. But, uh, yeah, Victor Mete, I'm a big fan of his puck moving ability. I know he has flaws in his game, but if there's any team he could go to that would give him some minutes and see if he's got something left in the tank to produce offensively, I like him in Ottawa. Now, DJ Smith, we know he doesn't like his puck movers, so how long before Mete is a healthy scratch? <laughs> I wonder if the Leafs did put in a claim on that or not on Mete. I, they had to. Surely they would have just because why not, but – the yeah the interesting thing about the Hutton thing is is what Dubas said about it afterwards, which was uh, they really were not looking for somebody who was like a a power play uh, sheltered offensive start him in the at the offensive zone face off every shift sort of guy because they feel like they have that in Dermot and Sandine I assume that's me adding my own interpretation uh, so I don't I don't know I think that's what what I do like about Hutton in that respect is that like. I mean, Anthony, you and Declan, I feel like we've been talking about Hutton for a long time. Uh, they were as, interested in him in 2019, so we started researching think, him a little bit. I think he would have been a Leaf if uh, circumstances were a little bit different in terms of, at that time, I believe, uh, well, A, the Marner situation's hanging over your head yeah. uh, at that time. And then I think they also had, like, Hutton ended up signing for like a million and a half or something in L.A. Got uh, to play with Drew Doughty, though. 
Yeah, but like I don't think the Leafs could have given him a million and a half uh, just because of their uncertainty cap-wise. And they had Dermott, who was going to come back off the shelf, I think, in November or something of that season. So they were just content to say, we like him. We like him as a player. And there is, there is but we're not, like he's not going to be a fit. And I do think there's quite a bit to like about him as like a, like every contending yeah. team to me needs to have that guy who should be a regular and isn't playing for you because that means that you have depth of note. And Hutton, I think, is a, like he stands out. He's always stood out to me as somebody who can move really well. He's got good size. Uh, he can definitely play an NHL shift, and the Leafs needed, badly needed, I think, one more of those. Uh, as Anthony made the point about Marinson earlier, but like Sandine hasn't played a, Sandine's played two games in like a calendar year, I think. Yeah, he's barely played. I do wonder if he's going to get a look here down the stretch, especially with so. the power play struggling. I think Sandine on PP two could give you a bit of a boost there. I have some final deadline thoughts here, and then we can get to that struggling PP. Whenever I think of the deadline, a few years ago, um, I was out and about, and then I ended up going for, I won't name him, but I ended up going for a beer with with the guy who's a general manager of an OHL team. And we were talking a little bit about trading and whatever else. And he said to me, his first deadline as like a rookie GM, he didn't make a trade, and he got a call from a veteran in the league and just said, you know, what are you doing? And he's like, what do you mean? What am I doing? And he's like, well, I wasn't sure if I was, you know, if we were going to go for it or we weren't good enough. And the guy said to him, like, you either buy or you sell, but you don't do nothing. And when I look at teams who barely did anything, like the Minnesota Wild did not make a move. Like, what is the point of your team? You are not going anywhere in that division. If you want to try to make the playoffs, then I don't know, shore up your roster a little bit further. Or you have a number of pending UFAs that you could easily sell off. Ian Cole, pretty good player. Marcus Johansson, pretty good player. Like, you can go down their lineup, right? Nick Bonino, teams would like Nick Bonino as a third-line center. Nick Bustad, like, do something. Like, you can't just do nothing, right? And then I look at, like, Philly is an example to me. And I've brought them up a number of times on this podcast. They're having a terrible year. They're going nowhere in that division. They have a number of aging vets on huge deals. We didn't hear a single one of their names available. Like, why would you not try to see if you could, like, trick a team into taking JVR because he's having a heater of a season? Like, that's a bad contract. Like, that contract's going to hurt you. We all know every single Leaf fan, the second that contract was signed, was like, that's a terrible deal. Right? And it's only going to get worse. Like, why would you not try to see if you could, your team is bad. You have a number of good young players. I like Frost. I like Farabee. You have a little bit of a core there. Resigning Lawton is fine, but why are you going to keep all these old guys around and block them? Why not see if you can get something for Voracek, right? Like we talked about defensemen that there were none available. Like Anaheim is going nowhere. Like why would they not put Josh Manson on the market? I just find it like it's mind boggling where you look at Steve Eiserman, who we're going to give a ton of props to Anthony Mantha, who's not that old. He was like, yeah, you know what? This guy's not part of our timeline here. But what, Josh Manson pending UFA after next season and going to be like 30 is part of Anaheim's timeline? Like, what are you guys doing? I I don't understand what some of these general managers see when they're looking at their roster and they're looking at their team stink night after night and they don't sell a thing. Like, all those teams to me are losers. Like, you guys talked about Winnipeg and Edmonton. They did nothing, basically losers like either you go for it a little bit and you're Edmonton you're like we have two like heart caliber guys and this is probably the easiest our division's ever going to be and if they went for it and tried to like drum it up I mean I wouldn't think that they would go anywhere unless they actually were able to bring in players of high quality but I'd be like I get it I think people could understand it and we brought up the five percent theory on this podcast before where if you have a five percent or greater chance of winning the cup you go for it. You push all of your chips into the middle of the table, and it is time to give your chance the best chance of winning. Winnipeg, Edmonton, Montreal, they're at 2% or lower, according to Dom. You brought up uh, Minnesota earlier. They're at 3%, according to Dom. So, Like, how do they do, do nothing? Do? Yeah, exactly. What do you how do, do if do you're not quite good enough to be in that elite tier of teams that have a legitimate chance of winning the Cup? Then you but you're sell. not bad enough to be a complete bottom feeder who's selling everything. It's like the Leafs last year. Like, I would have traded Tyson Berry on principle alone. One, he stunk. Two, he was a pending UFA that there was no chance in hell they were bringing back. I would have just said, off you go. 
like after the David Ayers game, they looked into it. There was rumors of yeah, him getting moved they for a mid-round pick, and I don't think the price was high enough for them to justify doing it. But he ended up playing on their third pair with Mark Marincin in Game One of the playoffs. So I think that tells yeah. you everything that the but the evaluation process on Tyson. Barry. I would rather have a third-round pick. Like some of these things, I'm just so confused by. Like like Philly traded. Like Philly did nothing basically, and they're terrible. But they traded Eric Gustafson for a conditional seventh. It's like. Why even bother? On principle alone, if somebody called me for a player and they're like, I will give you a conditional seventh for a player who can legitimately take shifts in the league, I'd be like, absolutely not. Like, there's just no chance. Like, that doesn't make any, any sense. Conversely, a team that I low-key actually really liked their deadline was Chicago, because at least they tried. Did you know (laughs) Chicago brought in like 10 assets over the past few days? This is what teams need to be doing. If you're not a contender, just use your cap space to add more free assets. That's Here, the smart thing. Here's to do. a list. Here's a list. The Anmark deal is an awesome yeah. return. Here's a list of what Chicago brought in Vinny Hinestroza, who they know and isn't bad, Brett Connolly, Riley Stillman, Henrik Borgstrom, who was once very promising, Adam Gaudet, who Canucks fans fell over themselves for like, I don't know, months ago. So you Ryder Rolston. prospects. Yeah, Josh Dickinson, a second, a seventh, and a third. Right? And then they sold. But that's a team that's like, you know what? We've had a pretty good year. We know we're going nowhere in the long run. Let's take some lottery tickets. And let's just see. And yeah, I can make fun of those players all I want. But like you said, they, there's a chance there that maybe you have something. I mean, we've seen players get traded before to Chicago where you go, ah, Richard Panic, his career's over. Dylan Strom, Bust, and they find a way to turn it into something. Maybe not the elite top-line asset you're looking for, but hey, if you can turn a nothing asset into a something asset that's going to help you in the trade market later on, I like that decision. So even though, is Chicago a a, a legitimate good team this year? Are they just one of those bottom feeders who are are picking up cap space from everyone? I mean, they're, they're in fifth in their division. They're four points behind Nashville with a game in hand. They have a minus 13 goal differential, and Dallas is behind them with two games in hand to catch them. So, I mean, they're in the conversation. In a world, he could have said, you know what, I'm going to try to reward this team for playing well. But he didn't. Like, he's not delusional. So I at least respect that he's like, I'm going to work my ass off. And if I can make this team like 3% better at this deadline by acquiring a bunch of lottery tickets and just seeing how it plays out, I'm going to do it. Whereas just a number of these teams, I'm like, you know, Anaheim did well to get Hayden Fleury, but like beyond that, I mean, that's just a brutal deadline for a brutal team. And they are like that, that team, just what they've done to their defense prospects is beyond embarrassing. Like that, they should probably have one of the top defenses in the league. And they've Speaking pissed Speaking of beyond away. embarrassing, let's yeah. talk about the least power play. Yeah. They're what, one for their last 37? They've given up more than, than they've scored. The Toronto Maple Leafs on the power play. Yeah, I think they've allowed three shorthanded goals in that time. Their scoring chances and shot numbers at 5-4 on four are down significantly in the last month. They're not gaining the zone with possession. Some of that has to do with Wayne Simmons or Joe Thornton playing on PP1 and the pucks dying on their stick. But at the end of the day, it's the top-end talent on a power play that's supposed to be the one breaking down the defense. What are you guys seeing from the power play? I have my own thoughts. I've been making notes during the games, but I respect your opinion. What are you guys thinking when it comes to this Leafs power play? Because something's gone terribly wrong in the last month, and I'm trying my best video and numbers to try to dissect what the issue is. What have you been seeing? You're bang on that I don't think it's the law of averages anymore in terms of like, for a while it was like, okay, their they're shooting percentage is coming back to earth. That was going to happen. They're converting on like a ridiculous amount of their chances earlier in the year. Uh, to me, it's a lot more than that now. I think everyone knows that. They genuinely look like shit on the power play. Uh, the like the good process, bad luck thing, I think it might have been a factor early on in this drought that kind of led to some of the crisis and confidence and kind of the gripping of the sticks. And But like at this point, they're generating a lot less in both quantity and quality. I'm sure you have the numbers, Ian, more than I do, but it's really visible in terms of like, it's so stale, it's so predictable, it's so lacking in ideas overall. There's like zero sense of real purpose to the way they're moving the puck and how they're going about an attack. Uh, They're just not giving penalty kills like anything to think about in terms of they're not breaking down structure. Uh, I think there's 
there's kind of two conversations that we could have, which is like there's the personnel side of it and then there's the tactic side of it. Um, tactically, like I, this has been a thing I've been banging on about for like a year now, but I feel like they don't utilize like a down low below the goal line kind of option enough. Uh, Ever since JVR left, they haven't really looked to get the puck down low. Music to Ian's ears. He just loves the down low power play. I like chances from in tight. I think that Marner, Kadri, JVR power play unit, it had the best expected goal rate of the last decade. I think whatever they were doing leads to quality chances. But, like, in terms of, like, if you have, like, say you have Tavares in that front, um, getting him to, like, open up down low next to or kind of beneath the goal line, behind the net a little more, I feel like they haven't been working that play at all where they kind of kick it down low and Tavares can go, or whoever it is, can go kind of cross the net, jam play, back into the slot for, like, a bang-bang one-time play. Like, it kind of feels like lately it's just a lot of tossing around at the top of the umbrella, no real purpose, no real plan. They're not pulling the PK apart. They're not forcing them to kind of contract as a four-man unit down low and then have to flare back out to start a kind of accordion them and pull them apart, create a little more like vertical high to low movement, be like a little more fluid, a little less predictable in your approach. Uh, and then I think there's a whole other conversation about like entries and then, which Anthony, I think would be better to speak to. I haven't watched the video too much on it, but I do have some thoughts on like the personnel side of it too, which I think is a whole other conversation. Yeah. And what was the exact quote from Keith or like the exact question he was asked where they, they, you know, were wondering to him why the power play was struggling. And he said it was about a hundred percent between the ears. I think they actually asked like, you know, how mental are these struggles? And he said a hundred percent. And I was like, you know, I wouldn't really expect him to get into this with the media because I wouldn't if I was him. But it's definitely not 100%. I think there's a few things at play with personnel and tactics. Like, I I wrote just very briefly about it uh, this morning. But I just, I don't know how they're trying to score goals. And that's not a good thing. Like, I actually don't know what they're trying to do on the power play. I don't get it. The puck is on Marner's stick more than anybody else's. He has zero goals on the half wall. Like, you can't have a guy with zero goals on the half wall. That teams just don't respect his shot right and then Has he's gonna he go always kind of operated from that right wall space even in past power play iterations that have been successful but he scored right for a little while he had that toe drag play where and he scored some nice goals off of it but he has nothing on it this year and so anytime he goes up to riley and then goes across to matthews which is a little awkward right because Riley has to catch it as a lefty from a righty on the strong side and then he has to kind of shift his body and then pass it a lefty to a lefty on the strong side which is actually a little bit harder to do like it's easier for a player to go cross body and pass it across the ice that's why teams like left-handed guys on the left side of defense and right-handed guys on the right side of defense but on the power play it takes an extra second Handedness tends to be overrated, but on the power play, it's it makes huge. a huge difference in terms of click-click passing and making sure that you get the passing lanes you're looking for. So Matthews loses that extra second. And we all know what Matthews wants to do, right? He wants to take some strides up to around the blue line and then come down with momentum and catch the puck in stride and just rip one. Like, we know that. He used to do that with William Nylander all the time. Those guys would play pitch and catch through the top of the circle area. And he would come down with speed, and he'd absolutely just crush goalies. But he would team, either catch teams it are, and rip it. Teams are all over that now, though. Yeah, uh, right? He catches it. Teams are like, we don't respect Marner's shot. Riley's going to do yep. nothing at the point. We don't respect Joe Thornton in the bumper whenever he Nor plays should they. there. So then we talk about, so you mentioned Marner on the half wall previously with JVR and Kadri. So the big thing that Marner really had at his disposal is he had two options. So power plays really, in my opinion, need two options. They need their bread and butter. This is our play. And then they need a counterattack when teams sell out on it. So if we use Washington as an example, we all know their goal. Vetchin's going to stand right there, and he's going to you know, try to just rip a one-timer in. But when teams started taking that away originally, remember players would just stand beside Alex Ovechkin? Yeah. And then they would actually... was wide open in the slot. It was kind of the same yeah. thing with Patrick Lane in Winnipeg. Mark Scheifele would be wide open in front of the net, and you'd go, okay, this is a better shot. Nice, yeah. I'll take this. They'd be like, okay, this is what we want to do. And if you don't take it away, we're just going to punish you. But if you do take it away, we're just going to punish you a different way. Whereas the Leafs, I don't know what they're trying to do. And I don't know what they're trying to counter. So you talk about JVR Kadri. 
So Kadri in the bumper roll as a lefty taking a pass from a righty there can easily redirect pucks, and he loved that. And it was like, the was slap pass. It. it was the slap pass resulted in a rebound. Four players converge for the rebound, and you create chaos. It was either yeah. that slap pass to Kadri or the down low play to JVR. Jam play, everyone converged for the rebound. Because teams they would play it like a diamond, anymore. right? Pe- teams yeah. would play it like a diamond. So the guy that was up on Marner would either take away that pass to Kadri, right? But then he kind of gives off some space. So JVR, as a lefty, his right hip, so hopefully I'm explaining this right for people listening, his right hip would be on the post, but as a lefty, his left hip would be towards the boards, as would his stick, so he could catch the puck in space, plus he's huge, and he could make a play down there, right? We Like, he could pass it to Kadri, he could, you know, he liked through the legs, he would try to shoot it, he could pass it back to Marner, so either Marner was like, I'm just gonna, you know, slap pass it to Kadri in the bumper roll, or I'm going to pass it to JVR. But I'm making a pass. Just you guys don't know which one. I'm just going to take whatever you give me. Right now, the power play, it's not trying to focus on anything. So to me, I don't know why they've completely gone away from Matthews one-timers. Like if you're going to play Matthews on a strong side, then realistically it has to be Nylander on the other side. Right? Like So then you have two shooters and those guys yeah. can rip passes back and forth. But when it's Marner and it's Riley up top, it's just not happening. I agree so, entirely. Like, uh, on the personnel side, on the personnel side, though, quickly, like, if Nylander was back right now, I think they have to do that, where they put them on opposite flanks. Because I think it does open up a lot more when you have dual dual shooting threats on both sides of the ice versus kind of that predictability we're talking about. And that, we've seen it. That was lights out for a long time. And, you know, if the puck's on Nylander's side, like, he's... And they both get going downhill on the two flanks. He's just as liable to shoot it as he is to rip it across the ice. And it keeps it... Uh, PK is really honest, right? I think we're we're all probably on this pod in favor of loaded power plays at this point, personnel-wise. But, but even, like, and I think it's ridiculous that Keith said, we're just setting it and forgetting it with these split unit power plays. I think that's something you do with, you know, your most talented configuration. It's not something you do with a split units that you have no idea if they're even working or successful in any way. So, uh, but back to the point, even operating within the world of split units, maybe this is kind of blasphemous but i don't see why it has to be nylander that has to go to pp2 in favor of marner every single time like we talked about it when is marner last scored on the power play uh he definitely contributes heavily to the predictability of the unit right now and i was looking at the the numbers a few days ago just at the stats since like uh the power play went completely dry whenever that was now like i think it's been over a month um and he's been like Marner's averaging like 10 shot attempts individually per 60 on the power play, which is just shockingly low for the amount he has the puck. I think even someone we were talking about the Washington power play, Backstrom shoots quite a bit higher than that. Um, and that's just forgetting the fact that like he's not that good at gaining the zone either, I don't think. What, what's your yeah, pushback here, That's the thing here, with Marner Ian? that I think frustrates me the most is that he doesn't gain the, zo- to the, gain the zone to the degree that I think he should. Nylander's better at talent. it than him, like straight up. Yep. And I do wonder if that's a way to improve your just time in the offensive zone by gaining the zone a bit more efficiently. I know Eric Parnas, before he got hired by Colorado, did some great research that showed the most predictive way of scoring on the power play are teams who can set up and get in zone and in formation. I think top-loading the power play seems to be something we're all in favor of. So let's discuss this unit if it were the four top forwards that we're all thinking of and Morgan Riley on the blue line. We, what, I mean, What's your argument against the shooting configuration? Because you mentioned that you had an argument against that. Yeah, so with Marner, even though he's not a shooter, and I think the Backstrom point's a good one because he's also someone we don't think of as a shooter, but even he's shooting it more than Marner. The idea of keeping someone honest, it reminds me of... If you have a shooter in the NBA who can't hit a three-pointer, then the other team's just going to back off of you. And even if you're an elite passer, those passing lanes get a lot more clogged up when they're not respecting your shot. So if you have Nylander in the shooting position, I get why you want him there, but then the puck's on his stick more often instead of Marner. And Marner's led the NHL in assists per 60, I think at 5-on-4 since entering the league. So that's something where... Even though he frustrates you as a non-shooter, he's such an elite passer that you want to get the most out of that skill. That's why you're paying him $11 million. I think my favorite look for the Leafs on the power play this year has been Marner on the left wall, Nylander kind of playing net front, and then they'll swap, and Marner will go down to the net front, and Nylander will play the half wall. And Marner as a passer out of the corner from behind the net, he'll kind of back off and make 
saucer passes from below the goal line. I think that's a look that they need to look into a bit more because, like we said, it's getting a bit too much predictability. I can't talk right now. It's getting a bit too predictable in the offensive zone. So you have John Tavares that we would love to see as the net front, but the problem is that I think he's more of a bumper realistically in a, in a final version of this power play. I think they see John Tavares as the bumper, Matthews and Marmer, Marner along the perimeter, and then William Nylander kind of in the extra space. Even though I don't think William Nylander is the ideal net front presence, I think having more talent out there and having him and Marner kind of roll around and do quick little one-two plays along the half wall, I think there's a bit more availability there to create passing lanes. And again, we're talking about just throwing more talent on the ice. That's what throwing more talent on the ice gives you. It gives you more options to create passes through the middle of the ice. I would I would probably be looking just slightly different, but very similar. I would I would stick with the Nylander on the half wall. I would give it a go just to see. Just two shooters a little bit better. And I would ask Tavares and Marner to rotate depending on whose puck it like uh I should say, wow, now you're you're contagious. Now I can't speak. Whoever has the puck on the half wall, I would ask them to to rotate to, for handedness. So if the puck is on Nylander's side, or if it's on the right side, I would want Tavares in front because he could stick his stick out as a passing option away from the net. Conversely, Marner on the other side as a righty could stick his stick out and be a passing option. So they kind of switch and get some movement going throughout and they could kind of run little picks and little rubs and to create themselves some space down low like i think they could easily have a play where matthews goes in for the shot and teams sell out and they pass he passes it down low to marner as a righty who easily catches it and a guy like nylander sneaks back door like that kind of stuff or he just one touches it to Tavares in the slot like i'm just often looking like they're not they're not moving at all there's like there's just no creativity. Like you can tell the lack of confidence. They had a four minute power play against Calgary with six minutes left. I barely blinked when they called it. I was like, this might actually be a bad thing. Calgary might score and take the lead. <laughs> so, it's feeling that way right now. So they got, they got to do something though. And they got to get Simmons and Thornton off of it. So I know recently they've gone back with Tavares, Hyman, Matthews, Marner. Uh, but they got to ask these guys to change up their looks. They got to get them moving a lot more. And, uh, you know, the last thing I'll say on this, this has been a bit of a concerning trend the past few years where their power play has been red hot and then it's completely dried up right before the playoffs. And it's really hurt them in the playoffs. Like they've they've been really good at five on five. I think they're going to be even better with Felino in, in tow and Nylander back. But their special teams are bad and I'm concerned. Like I'm officially concerned. And we've been spending most of this time talking about PP1, as we should, because I think they're going to get the bulk of the minutes in the playoffs. Third period, you really need a goal. What do we think is going to happen? I think Toronto's going to throw their best five players on the ice and try to score a goal. I think that's what's going to end up happening. But I think PP2 is an area where we could see significant improvement. If Erasmus Sandin comes in, Nick Foligno can come in, and if he doesn't play bumper, he can play net front. There are extra pieces that you can play around with there. So even though, again, the bulk of your power play offense is going to come from the first unit I think there are things the Leafs can do to improve that second unit and I really think Rasmus Sandin is going to get a hard look here down the look and I, down, down the down the stretch of the season here and even if you're sheltering him at five on five I think that power play value he could provide you as a passer from the point I think that could make a big difference into turning your fortunes around yeah and uh we I know we have a few minutes left here Ian likes to keep it to an hour oh true sorry Alec did I cut you no, off here we're already at 58 that's a good point <laughs> um, no, I'm just so fascinated by what's behind the split unit thing this year, because my theory on it is that it is, uh, I think it's like an internal politics thing in terms of he wants to keep Thornton and Simmons empowered and involved because they're so limited at five on five right now. Um, he doesn't want to like totally marginalize them because they are important just as much as people as they are as players, obviously. Um, but it's completely out of step with everything we know about him philosophically, right? Like he... He's all about loading up lines, uh, situationally, uh, five on five. It's, I can't, you cannot convince me that Keith thinks that it's a bad idea just to set and forget putting his best talent on the ice to figure it out. You cannot. Well, this is kind of like the Nick Felino thing over Taylor Hall, right? It's about trying to find the balance between the right locker room and the leadership and trying to make sure that your young players, Matthews and Marner, 
are receiving the right kind of guidance from guys like Thornton and Simmons, but they're not going to listen to them if they're healthy scratches every night. Maybe they will listen a bit more if they're producing well and playing on the power play. So what that's it, a difficult What it hints at to me to is that there are some hard conversations that still need to happen. Like been it's clear for months, like in, he's got to have uncomfortable conversations. It's clear right. to me that that's uh, it's already happened with Spezza because there's such a history there in terms of, you know, Babcock scratched him. They placed him through waivers. Like there's clearly a dialogue that is happening with Spezza in terms of here's the deal. Here's how it's going to work. Here's how I'm going to manage your workload. This is what we need you to do. I'm not convinced those conversations have taken place with Simmons and Thornton yet, but they're going to have to because you cannot run. I don't think in a playoff series, all of Simmons, Spezza, and Thornton in their top 12. So they're going to have to get a rotation going and everyone's going to have to be on board with it. And it's going to have to be established before the playoffs so that there's no drama with it. So that's what I'm most curious about now, just to pivot and close this off is down the stretch. Do we see that kind of more active rotation? Do we see some nights off for Thornton and Simmons? Uh, Because it, I don't, I don't think you can just start doing it in the playoffs. They need to establish it. They need to start getting their, five best players on the power play reps together. I know that it's something you can probably just go to, but you don't want to be sorting it out in critical situations in the playoffs. You need to give it some time in the regular season as well. So that's what I'm kind of looking at is like, does do we stop kidding around a little bit here in terms of what we're doing with the power play, with uh, the depth of the team and the veterans that are there, especially now that you're adding Felino, which I think that's kind of an awesome thing about Felino too, is that it's pretty clear to me that Simmons is not a top nine forward. He might not be a top 12 forward at this point. So, like, Felino gives them a lot of what I think they, you wish you would have gotten out of Simmons, but is no longer realistic to expect in terms of he gives them that physical edge and nastiness inside, a, like, a competent top-nine hockey-playing body, uh, which Simmons' skating right now is embarrassing to watch. We were, we, were talk, we were talking, like, about closing out games earlier and how Felino can help that. The game against Calgary on uh, Tuesday night, that, to me, the Leafs had a good third period after a bad opening 40. They had that game going the way they needed it to go. They, they had a nice push. They came back. They tied it. Uh, there was a bad power play that, that sidetracked them, and then there was an absolutely embarrassing shift by Wayne Simmons where he turned the puck over multiple times, including at the offensive blue line, and then the, the, the Flames proceeded to pin them in and nearly win that game in regulation in the final two minutes. That's the kind of shit they got to start cutting out and be more serious about, and if that involves benching guys being a little bit more serious about this kind of thing they need to start ramping up for the playoffs i think the sad thing is that i don't think wayne simmons can carry the puck i don't think ever since how long has this been the case now at five on five where he's a liability and even though he does the things that you want him to do battling hard to the net finishing checks being a leader in the room i do wonder how much that lack of puck carrying ability is just such a drag on his actual five and five results i'm not sure if you can even play him in an important playoff game. I know you want to. I know that there are elements to his game that he's going to provide. And in a COVID season, it's tough to manufacture energy. That's why these guys like Felino and Simmons have valued NHL general managers. But my my last point man, on vets. I know we're like wrapping up. Ian, do you have a final point, or you want me to go? I think they need to take Simmons out of the lineup sometime soon because yeah. he is just going through it at five and five. So I know we've talked about basketball a few times in this podcast, and I read a really good article last year after the Clippers got bounced and they blew that 3-1 lead. It was in the ringer. I think it was Kevin O'Connor that wrote it. And one thing he was ta- he was writing about it is he was talking about how Kawhi, because Kawhi essentially built that team, right, or kind of manipulated some of the pieces, built his team compared to what LeBron did in L.A. with the Lakers. And the thing that he was mentioning was LeBron brought in a number of vets, like guys who they've made their money. They don't care about making money at this point. They care about winning championships. Like they'll take whatever role they have to. And if you remember in the playoffs last year, like there were entire series where Dwight Howard did not play, right? Like he basically did not play because he was, it was not his kind of style of series. But in the finals he played because they needed that kind of banger and crasher against Miami. But I think it was against Portland where like, he basically did not touch the floor because Portland went small and they were essentially eating him alive. Same with Houston. Playoff Rondo got hot from the three-point line, so they gave yeah. him some more minutes down the stretch. But but Dwight Howard being a vet and just a guy who wants, you know, he's already paid. Like, he just wants to win a championship. Like, he's not worried about how much money he's making in his next when his contract is up. You know, he took that role. Like, he didn't pout. He took it in stride. And when, you know, he was called upon 
he was ready to go. Whereas the Clippers had a guy like Montrez Harrell who hadn't been paid yet, who just kind of got paid by the Lakers, coincidentally, right? And they kept trotting him out in a contract year, and like he made a thing about it against the Nuggets, and uh, the Nuggets just absolutely crushed him. Like the Joker just absolutely... Like, he can't play defense against a guy like that. But it was kind of that distinction between, you know, you're trying to win a championship, but you're trying to also balance, like, guys who want to get paid and they need to get their minutes and all these things versus vets who are much more willing to take on roles and sacrifice for the greater good of the team because they've already been paid and that's not top of mind. That's what, like, Joe Thornton and Wayne Simmons and possibly, to a degree, Jason Spezza have to do at this point. Like, they've got to sit them down and just have that tough conversation where it's like, guys, like, we're trying to win a cup this year and we very clearly have gone all in and you very clearly cannot play every game. Like that's where we're at and you guys have to accept it. And it's not going to have a negative impact on the team. I think it's going to have a positive impact because like you got to sit there and like you're Austin Matthews and like you're on top of the world and you're Mitch Marner and you're on top of the world. And you look at a guy like Joe Thornton who once was, and he hasn't won anything and he's sitting there and he's like, boys, like I'm sitting because I know what's best for the team. And if that's not powerful to those guys, like nothing will be like that. That sends a message to everybody in that room. Like, this is what we're trying to do compared to the Patrick Marlowe days of, no, I want to keep my streak. I haven't won a goddamn thing in this league, but keep playing me every game and don't rest me and get me ready for the playoffs. <laughs> and then I'm going to play like shit in said playoffs. And hey, then I'm I done. I remember getting mad about that in the moment and people telling me, no, this is something that NHL players care about. You need to understand that. But Mic drop. Uh, I don't want to just agree. I don't want to agree with everything Anthony just said. So let me quickly uh, pick no. one nit here. Jason Spezza, I don't think should be in the same conversation as Joe Thornton and Wayne Simmons. Right agreed. Now. Agreed. Spezza has been awesome on the power play. He's been a great point producer. I think whatever iteration of the Leafs lineup we see, I think there's going to be a sheltered Spezza line that is designed to create more offense. I think their other bottom six line is going to be designed to play more defense. And then you're going to have your Matthews-Marner line and your Tavares-Nylander line. I think that's more or less what we're going to see. Yeah, no, I agree with Spezza too. I could see a kind of series where they might not play him as much, but on the whole, I mean, they need his offense at this point. Like, that's you can't argue it. So I mean, we were talking about gaining the zone in the power play. He might be the best one at it right now. Yeah. Alec, any other closing thoughts or we get to sign off here? No, I think that's it. We covered a lot. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks, thanks for, for signing my paychecks, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just realized it was a little weird to thank you for inviting me onto the podcast. That uh, No, you're welcome. Let's, at the website that you run. Yeah, yeah. No, really appreciate yeah. it, man. That's so thoughtful and generous of you. But, <laughs> no, it was yeah, a lot of fun. Um, all right, Anthony, before we get out of here, looking forward to next week, anything that we should be keeping a close eye on? Just the engagement level, because holy cow, it's just painful watching this right now. Like, just end the season, but the Leafs have to find a spark. Like, they look pretty disinterested right now. I want to see them gain the zone. I can't wait for William Nylander to come back so we can get a few more transition opportunities. Uh, and when Nick Foligno and William Nylander join the lineup, two players are going to have to come out. We were already hinting at the fact that Sheldon Keefe seems to be suggesting that Pierre Engvall might be one of those players. Really curious to see who the second one might be, so... Until next week, we'll be back. Thanks for listening for over an hour. I know we try to keep these under an hour, but we figured there was a lot to dive into this week with the trade deadline and the Taylor Hall and Nick Foligno stuff. So thanks for putting up for, with us as long as you did. Me and Anthony will be, be back next week. I don't know about you, Alec. Are you in for another pod next week? I think this might have just been a one-off. I think I'm definitely in for some playoff pods, some emergency pods after big we'll wins and losses. We'll see you're if we Riley invite Nash. you. We'll see you're if we on LTIR you. now, yeah. and then we'll, we'll activate you right when the playoffs start. Exactly. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. We're taking off. See you next week. You've been listening to the Maple Leafs Hot Stove Podcast. For news, opinion, and analysis, make sure to go to mapleleafshotstove.com and join the conversation.